Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Welcome to FT Politics, a weekly discussion on what's happening in Westminster from the Financial Times. I'm Sebastian Payne. In this episode, we'll be discussing the end of the first stage of the Conservative Party leadership contest with Jeremy Hunt now going head to head with Boris Johnson. We'll be digging into how all the MPs voted and what lies ahead for the second stage with the party membership. Plus, we'll be discussing whether Labour is finally, ever so slowly, possibly moving towards endorsing a second Brexit referendum and whether the party would end up supporting Remain. I'm delighted to be joined by our political editor George Parker, columnist Robert Shrimsley, chief political correspondent Jim Picard and deputy opinion editor Miranda Green. Plus, we're delighted to welcome back Conservative commentator Tim Montgomery. Thank you all for joining. And if you find yourself liking this episode of FT Politics, then do subscribe through all the usual channels to receive it every Saturday morning. And yes, a good review doesn't go amiss. So the first stage of the Tory leadership contest is complete. After four rounds of voting this week, Rory Stewart, Sanjay Javid, Dominic Raab and Michael Gove were thrown out of the race, leaving Foreign Secretary Jeremy Hunt as the second place contender up against the clear frontrunner Boris Johnson, who received the support of over 50% of the parliamentary party. But there were lots of rumours in Westminster about vote squapping and skullduggery in the final rounds. So was it a fair result and what lies ahead? So George Parker, let's just begin by teeing up what happened. We began this week with also the first TV debate as well, which we should talk about, which I'm not sure was a great success for anyone. <laughs> but that debate really set up the voting for this week. And you had the first person to get knocked out was Dominic Raab. And I guess the reason that he didn't get very far was all the Brexiters had coalesced around Boris Johnson. There were no other votes to really go for him. He got Andrea Leadsom and Esther McVeigh on board. And I think Dominic Raab really struggled to break through in this contest in the way that his campaign initially had hoped for. Yeah, I think that's true. There was a crucial meeting um, between the European Research Group, the sort of hardline Eurosceptics, if you like, of the Conservative Party and Boris Johnson, where Boris Johnson gave them what they took to be a cast-iron guarantee that Britain would leave on October the 31st with or without a deal. They took him at his word. I suspect that may be a, a mistake on their part, but they did. And at that point, basically, the game was up for Dominic Raab. There was no nowhere else for him to go. And in the end, Possibly with the assistance of a tactical voting to knock him out of the contest, Dominic Raab was the first person to be knocked out in the first round of voting this week on Tuesday. So I saw you were grinning there, Robert Shrimsley, about this point about what was said or not said between Boris and the ERG. We'll come on to that in a little bit of a while. But before that, we had the first TV debate, which was the five contenders hosted by Emily Maitlis on the BBC. I think most people think the whole thing was a bit of a mess because there were too many contenders, too many questions being thrown about and not really enough scrutiny. And I think the only thing that came out of that was that Rory Stewart did very badly. And that really did for him for the next round of voting on Wednesday morning. Yeah, I mean, I felt a bit sorry for Emily Maitlis. It was an impossible debate to run and nobody came out of it, as you say, at all well. I sat there thinking, can we get Theresa May back? Um, Rory <laughs> might Stewart... be one of the few people who thought yeah, that. Yeah, perhaps the only one. Um, I, 
Rory Stewart had pinned a lot on this debate. He'd been building up some. He always seemed this quirky, improbable candidate. Everyone around Westminster assumed he wasn't going to make it, but he was beginning to build this momentum. And each time he went over another hurdle, he went, oh, could he, could he? And he pinned a lot of hopes on this debate. And the truth was, he simply couldn't outperform the others. It was a very, very difficult position to be in. They're all shouting at each other. He couldn't pin Boris Johnson down, which was his strategy. Actually, Jeremy Hunt was a little bit better at attacking Boris Johnson as far as anyone attached to that. And Rory Stewart then got squashed a bit by Michael Gove, who pointed out that his Brexit strategy was just to take Theresa May's bill back through Parliament. He sat there, he took off his tie, he did odd stretches, he looked a bit odd. And all the things that had made people quite warm to him didn't work in this debate. He lost momentum. He lost 10 votes after that debate, which left me wondering whether they hadn't lent, whether the Boris team hadn't lent him a few votes to push Dominic Raab out. Because the moment Raab was out of the way, Boris couldn't be out-Brexited in this contest. And he was able to sort of free himself up a bit. You know, Rory is still producing videos. Rory's walking on, I think, is the hashtag. So we haven't seen the last of him. Yes, Tim, I don't think anybody really thought Rory was going to end up in the final stage of this contest. But with his rallies and his walks, he'd captured something and you know there was always going to be candidate of the left of the Conservative Party it could have been him but it just shows these debates he really blew himself up then and we don't know whether he was lent votes or taken away votes but the fact that he went backwards by 10 votes is really extraordinary yes it was a funny uh, outcome and um but i think his team complained a little bit too much you know he went out because he didn't have enough supporters ultimately yes his vote might have been inflated in the previous round but ultimately he didn't have enough supporters i hope it was a terrible debate overall for the bbc uh, for the Conservative Party, and I think for democracy. And we're now close to the uh, 10th year anniversary of the introduction of debates into this country. And I hope the public will be tiring of them, because frankly, in terms of actual level of scrutiny that we get of our contenders, they're pretty poor. And um, I did a Twitter poll, actually, on Friday, asking my uh, followers whether they would think that a politician would get more scrutiny from another debate or 30 minutes sat in front of Andrew Neil. And, um, of course, completely scientific, but uh, we're running at about 96% think they get more scrutiny from Andrew Neil and 4% from a debate. And let's hope as we go into this final round of this contest, we get proper scrutiny rather than the shout-a-thon we got on BBC on Tuesday night. I think you can get both, though, that, you know, when this thing was originally suggested, the BBC said they were going to do the big panel debate. Then there's going to be the question time, which we had in 2005 with David Davis and David Cameron where they take questions hosted um, this time by Fiona Bruce and then there's the Andrew Neil interviews which is the kind of proper policy scrutiny is there not a role for both of them do you not think? I don't actually because I actually think debates take us backwards I think they you look at the great moments in American political history what do we remember from debates we remember Ronald Reagan's joke against Walter Mondale that he wasn't going to exploit Mondale's youth and inexperience uh, we remember Lloyd Benson's put down of uh, Dan Quayle for you know he knew Jack Kennedy and Dan Quayle was no Jack Kennedy. We remember the um, Nixon problem against um, Kennedy because he hadn't left. shaved properly. None of those things, uh, great memories of debates, really tell you anything about a contender's ability to be a good president or prime minister. They elevate things of celebrity and soundbite that are already too powerful in our politics. I, 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 w- I would get rid of them tomorrow if I was dictator. <laughs> I, I, I think there are two points. I mean, Tim is right, of course. On the other hand, I think what the debates do is give the voters a sense of people and confirm or work against the prejudices they had on a particular politician before that debate. The one thing is worth remembering, this was a debate between members of the 
Conservative Party, the scale of difference between these people is not that enormous. There was nobody there arguing against Brexit. They're all talking about their different implausible plans to carry Brexit through. So the actual space between them was really not that substantial. So to come on to your point from earlier, Robert, about what Boris Johnson said about Brexit, that he's taken a line that's fairly hard, but sort of soft around the edges, because he said we must leave on the 31st of October, not that we will leave on the 31st of October. And he used this phrase that it was eminently feasible to leave on the 31st of October, which certainly spooked some people in the ERG that I've spoken to this week who said, oh, hang on a minute, either has Boris fluffed his lines? And I know that they spent a whole day prepping Boris on his Brexit lines. And him out to fluff his lines. And then, and then he came out and said that. So did he either just fluff it, it was a straightforward mistake, or is it, as George was hinting at earlier, the fact that Dominic Raab has now left the race means that there's nobody to out-Brexit Boris, so in a way he can tack yeah. a bit more towards, I don't know, the opposite direction I mean, look, of this. There, there are three constituencies within the Parliamentary Party that voted for Boris Johnson. Number one is the out-and-out Brexiters who want Brexit delivered and want someone who believed in it. They had a choice in the serious front-runners between him and Dominic Raab, and the moment Dominic Raab went out, Boris had that constituency more or less sewn up. You had two other constituencies. One is the straight sort of panickers and opportunists, the people who think they're frightened they're going to lose their seat. Boris is the one that's going to save my seat for me. He's a star. And the third one you saw in the sort of the George Osborne evening standard coming around Boris, the Matt Hancock going over to him. These are the people who looked at this and said, he's going to win. Let's hug him close. Let's make sure that we can pull him into our orbit as much as possible. And if I was in the ERG, that would worry me because one of those two sides is going to be disappointed by this. Either Boris Johnson is going to end up having to... Well, there are three options. Either he really does manage to substantially renegotiate that deal. I think most people think that's the least likely outcome. Number two is he actually is forced to live up to his rhetoric, doesn't get a renegotiation and is obliged to try to push the no deal button with all the consequences that could have both electorally and economically. And the third is that he basically goes back to Brussels, takes Theresa May's deal, puts some lipstick on it, dresses it up a bit, takes it back to Parliament and persuades them to vote for it. And if you're some of the ERG, that's a bit worrying. So the bottom line is Boris has got to disappoint somebody... His rhetoric in the last couple of days since Dominic Raab went out is more towards disappointing the hardline Brexiters, but there's a way to go still. And the fact is that we aren't going to leave the EU on the 31st of October, are we? Under any circumstance, with or without a deal. So he will. Why do you think that? Because I don't think there's parliamentary time to legislate either for a deal or renegotiate the deal that uh, Theresa May struck in Brussels, or indeed to pass the necessary legislation to allow us to leave without a deal. So in the end, I think you know Boris Johnson will end up betraying the people who've, who've put him there. Do you rule out um, the EU basically expelling us, George? Because if we take him at his word, uh, the president, the French president did say there wouldn't be another extension. I think in the end, if Boris Johnson went back and asked for another extension just to give him a bit more time, I think the EU would do it simply because they don't want to get the blame. I mean, after all, there are jobs at stake in northern France, for example. So I don't think Macron, despite the the strong language he's been using over the last few days, including at the European Council in Brussels, I don't think in the end that the French will orchestrate an expulsion. So into the next stage of the race after this, the next person to drop out, George, was Sanjay Javid. And he did, I think, better than expected in the TV debate. And in a way, it all came a little bit too late for Mr Javid in this campaign. He's, his speech launching was good. He got the introduction from Ruth Davidson, who endorsed his candidacy. And he really began to sell that message as the change candidate. But he didn't do that from the off. And the initial stage of, of this whole contest, I think even Mr Javid would say that he underwhelmed here. So when it got to that stage, he was the obvious candidate to get knocked out and he was nowhere near Michael Gove or Jeremy Hunt when it came to that fourth stage of voting. Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I'm an admirer of Sajid Javid as Tim is and I think I think we agreed and last time we were on the podcast, we said it started too slowly and I think his team admitted it started too slowly. You asked why 
did it start slowly? And they said, well, there's lots of home office stuff to deal with. Well, in the end, you've got to clear your diary. Unfortunately, it's the biggest moment in your political career. And he didn't do it. In the end, he did find a way of telling his interesting life story uh, more effectively than he had done in the past, but it was too late. And in the end, he didn't have enough definition in terms of his, in the jargon, his forward offer to distinguish himself from the other candidates. He was for sort of a no-deal Brexit in certain circumstances. It wasn't really clear what, what he was for. And in the end, yes, he was knocked out. But I think we're going to hear a lot more of Sajid Javid. I think it's entirely likely that he will become the Chancellor of the Exchequer in a Johnson administration, not just because it would look good for the diversity of the Conservative Party to have a, an Asian Chancellor, but also because he's, he's attuned with Boris Johnson in terms of things like public spending. Sajid Javid is quite prepared to borrow loads of money to invest, for example, in housing, which would be very much a signature, I think, of a Johnson administration. Yeah, it does strike me, Robert, that Saj comes out of this with a better reputation than he went in because running for leadership is not a cost-free exercise. I think Dominic Robb probably comes out as a lesser person from this. But Mr Javid has clearly laid out the kind of things he'd like to do as Chancellor. His team seemed to have kind of saying private, well, in fact, he will back Boris. He's not actually publicly said it yet. But I think most people assume that in that final round of voting, he backed Boris over Jeremy Hunt. Do you think it's a given that he ends up becoming Boris's Chancellor if Boris wins? I don't think you can say it's a given, but I bet reasonably well on it. I think it's quite like, I think it's in the unlikely event that Jeremy Hunt won, I think he'd be his chancellor too. I think he's one of the people, as George exactly said, exactly as George said, who has come out of this contest better than he went into it. You know, if we think back to six, seven months ago, he seemed like the coming man. And then the air just went out of him a bit. Boris managed to get going again. So once this became a contest that Boris Johnson was the front runner in, then I think the game for a politician in the longer term was to enhance your status, get a good job, be there for next time. I think he is in, he's done, he's ticked all of those boxes. He has done well. I think he's got his story across. He got some interesting backers. The only question mark I put on any of this is that one lesson Boris Johnson will have learned, and Jeremy Hunt will have learned from the last few years, is that you really don't want a chancellor who you disagree with and who you can't sack. Now, at the moment, there's no reason to think that Sajid Javid is a chancellor that Boris Johnson would disagree with, but he might be hard to sack. So I think the next leader is going to want to make sure they're properly aligned. Yeah, I agree with what's been said here, and particularly about the infrastructure focus. I think one of the most interesting things that's happening in politics at the moment is that we know, and this is true around the world, but it's particularly true in Britain because the leave remain dynamic, is that we have better off people moving leftwards and we have poorer, sort of uh, more blue-collar workers moving rightwards. And I think the Tory party hasn't sufficiently ridden that under Theresa May. And I think both Boris Johnson and Sajid Javid get the fact that policy needs to be reorientated to this reality. And that, I do think, means very substantial new investment in the North and in the Midlands in infrastructure. I think it means emphasising things more like technical skills rather than necessarily university education and making a bigger offer in that area. And I think at least in that regard, Boris Johnson or Johnson, as I think we're now required to call him in the media, um, and, uh, and Sajid Javid are very, very closely aligned. So I don't make predictions about whether I, it would happen, but I think it would be a very good fit. Mind you, Boris is a big projects man, isn't he? He mm. does like a big glamour project. Yeah. N- normally stupid ones. Some are good, some are bad. George, and then we come to the final round of voting here, which is about Michael Gove. So Michael Gove has stayed very close to Jeremy Hunt throughout this whole thing in third place, coming within touching distance of overtaking him in several of the rounds. And when it came to the final vote on Thursday evening, he missed out by just an absolute whisker. And of course, this has led to lots of talk in Westminster. Was there vote lending going on? Because it was well known that Boris Johnson would much rather go up against Jeremy 
Jeremy Hunt than Michael Gove, partly because of the so-called psychodrama of 2016 to try and reenact that, but also just because Michael Gove is a much more skilled debater. He's a fellow Brexiter and would have been a much more formidable opponent, I think most people think, than Jeremy Hunt would have been. Yes, well, there's, I mean, I think there was vote lending, possibly on quite a reasonable scale going on, and people have called foul and said it's all skullduggery and duplicitous and terrible. I think there's a benign explanation for some of it, which is that I think some Conservative MPs off their own bat will have looked at the prospects of a Gove versus Johnson campaign playing out for four weeks, blood on the carpet, ending up probably with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister still, but seriously damaged by mm. a very pretty brutal campaign that I think Michael Gove would have waged against him and thought, do we really want that for four weeks? Wouldn't it be better to have Jeremy Hunt, gentlemanly Jeremy, up against him in the hustings over the next four weeks? So I think that happened. But the other thing, of course, as you say, is that the Johnson campaign did not want to face Gove. So given the fact they had in their hands the power to stop Gove getting onto the shortlist of two, actually, in not just figuratively, but actually they had the votes in their hands because there were lots of proxy votes being distributed and they were in the hands of Grant Shapps and Gavin Williamson, two of the, the lieutenants of the Johnson campaign. So they had the power to stop it. And I think it would be a massive blot on the reputation of Gavin Williamson, who ran a brilliant whipping operation for Boris Johnson in the leadership contest, had they allowed Michael Gove to get onto the shortlist of two. It would have been extraordinary if that had happened. And in the end, it was almost the result that Gavin Williamson would have invented because it meant that Boris Johnson had more than half of the parliamentary party behind him, symbolically very important. And it ensured that Jeremy Hunt got into the final two and it didn't look too obvious that he'd rigged it. So in the end, it was perfect. Now, whether it was as organised as that, I don't know. But as James Cleverley, another Johnson Backer said, if we were good at fixing votes, we wouldn't be in this mess we are at the moment. <laughs> well, well, I remember where I was almost three years ago on Salisbury Railway Station, heading up to London for Boris Johnson's campaign launch. <laughs> and I got the communication from Michael Gove's office that he was, well, we all know what he did, and uh, memorialised really in the uh, Peter Brooks cartoon of Michael Gove stabbing uh, Boris Johnson, but stabbing himself at the same time. And I remember exactly, I remember Boris then withdrawing from the race, and I remember the WhatsApp messages immediately afterwards from Tory MPs vowing revenge on Michael Gove. And yesterday, two Tory MPs told me that they'd voted for Jeremy Hunt in order to stop, you know, Michael Gove going through to the final round. So what George has said is true. There's a lot of pragmatism, people wanting to avoid the bloodiness, but absolutely there was revenge in that vote too. Yeah, I mean, I, I absolutely agree. I think that this is as exactly as George has described. The one thing I would say, though, is that I, I do think one can get over fixated about this, although Gove would definitely have run a, a more aggressive campaign. I think the fundamental fact is if Boris Johnson is going to lose this election, he's going to lose it, whichever of the two was in there, because it will require some event that we do not yet know, which is so staggeringly destructive that it takes him down or some gaff revelation which is so huge that the vote would just flock to whoever the other candidate was I th- and either of those two I don't would, think it was be- about losing Robert it was more about exactly no, what I, George said about being emerging Prime Minister either bloodied from the contest no, I, or more or less intact I think that's I think that's a fair point but I also think one can possibly overdo how much Gove would have, would have gone after him So we now end up is this place pretty much where we began George which is Boris Johnson in a commanding position as you said he got over half of Tory MPs on board for his campaign. Jeremy Hunt got just over 70 MPs, which is respectable. And they go into this contest. And again, it really does look like Boris Johnson's to lose because he's run a very controlled campaign. He did the BBC debate and he didn't, apart from all this discussion about his Brexit policy, he didn't really blow up. There were no major gaffes that the sort that his campaign were quite worried about. So the question now for Jeremy Hunt is what chance does he have to try and beat Boris? Well, I agree with Robert. I don't think he has much 
chance of beating Boris and use the old cliche, Boris has to beat himself or there has to be something, as Robert says, something catastrophic from Boris Johnson's point of view that blows up his campaign. I think all Jeremy Hunt can do is is appear to be the prime minister in waiting, someone that the party might turn to in the event that Boris Johnson starts to look flaky or unreliable or, or in some way. So it's hard to see how it happens. I mean, I'm uh, on Saturday going to the first of the hustings up in Birmingham between Boris Johnson and Jeremy Hunt. It's something that listeners may not be aware of. These hustings, it seems, will be organised so that the candidates aren't on the stage at the same time. They're going to take 45 minutes of questions from the audience and then the other candidate will turn up as well. So they won't, there won't be that sparring element, I think, which would, would, would have been interesting. I think the thing that Tim mentioned earlier, the, the big sort of bear traps for Boris Johnson in this campaign, I think, are going to be the one-to-one interviews where he's going to be subject to forensic, detailed, repetitive questions on things that he will find uncomfortable, particularly on Brexit. So those are the things I think to watch out for. But it's the extraneous thing, the thing that Robert said that we can't predict is really the thing that could stop Boris Johnson. Yeah, I mean, I agree with everything George said. I, th- I think that even the interviews, though, are not quite as horrendous f- for Boris Johnson as, as they might be, because we have to remember who the audience really is. The audience is somewhere between 120, 160,000 Conservatives, many of whom are going to vote for him the second their ballot paper arrives, which is early to mid-July. And they don't care if Andrew Neil pins him down on a small piece of detail about GATT24. If he says, we've got to believe, we've got to have faith, the people he's talking to, a lot of them are going to be okay with that. So I think it's very important when we look at those moments on television, those public interviews, we remember who the audience is and the audience isn't liberal Remainer land. Yes, and Tim, I think this is a very important point. You know the Conservative grassroots uh, much better than anyone, I think, and you know what they're looking for here. What you know Is that right, that really just they have to it's going to be Boris and unless something spectacular happens we can't imagine it's really a done deal. I, I think that is right because Boris's lead is so substantial but it's not the sort of crude right-wing uh, electorate that I think is of caricature. This is a electorate much more than their Labour equivalents that want power. You know, Tory m- members love being in power and they certainly want to stop Jeremy Corbyn being Prime Minister. And so if opinion polls start to suggest for whatever reason, that Boris Johnson has a popularity problem, perhaps because he starts to really underperform in the interviews that Robert mentions, I think it's hard to see his lead being overturned. But they will worry about that. You know, they do want Brexit, but they do want to stop Corbyn more than anything else, entering number 10. So I think this interview will, will interview process will matter. And all of us, by proxy, through the opinion polls, will potentially have an influence on this race. Because there was one sporting MP I spoke to on Friday, Tim, who said, really, Jeremy knows he's not going to win. We know Jeremy's not going to win. The question is, how does Jeremy affect the Boris Johnson that comes out the other side? Exactly. And um, I also hope that there still will be room in these hustings, not just for Boris to be improved by Jeremy Hunt, but for some of these hustings to be themed as well. I think there is an opportunity here for the Conservative Party to have at least some of these debates focused on issues like the Northern Powerhouse or the care of the elderly or other issues that will show a face to the Conservative Party that it desperately needs to show to voters. Meanwhile, the Labour Party met for yet another special meeting of its shadow cabinet to discuss... Brexit, obviously. It seems that the party leadership has broadly agreed to endorse a second referenda under any circumstances with any deal negotiated by the government, but it has not yet finally decided support remain under any circumstances. That question might be saved for next week after yet more consultations and discussions. So, are we finally heading to a conclusion and a definitive change in the Labour Party's Brexit policy? And where might Jeremy Corbyn land in all this? Jim Picard, this policy has 
done the round so many times and you've had the joys of writing this story in so many different variants. Can you give us an overall view of where Labour's Brexit policy is and what, if anything, has changed this week? OK, so we, we've been around this track a million times before, as our long-suffering listeners will be aware. I think the fundamental situation is still, as we've known it, that there's a bit of gridlock and a couple of publications who got a bit excited earlier in the week and said, this is it, Labour's suddenly becoming Remain. It was a little bit premature, but actually, after this very long, at least a year battle, there are quite a few signs that Jeremy Corbyn is now on a trajectory which will lead him into pretty much a Remain position by September. And so the fog is lifting a little bit. And, you know, it's very easy to be so cynical about this that we don't spot the moment where they do suddenly turn themselves into the Remain party, which when you think that a year ago, April 2018, Owen Smith was sacked from the shadow cabinet for advocating a second referendum, you know, it has been quite a journey. It's just been a lot of two paces forward, one pace back all the time. So if we go back to Labour's conference motion last year, that has become the er text of Labour's Brexit policy, which essentially said our first priority is for a general election to try and take control of power. If there's not a general election, all other options are on the table, including the prospect of a second referendum. And that was a really a big compromise between the Remainers like Keir Starmer and Emily Thornbury, the Brexit spokesman, foreign, Shadow Foreign Secretary, and the more Brexit people like Len McCluskey in the Union and lots of people around Jeremy Corbyn. So that's the framework this whole debate has been going. It's been a kind of push and pull within that for quite a long time. And there's a little bit of manoeuvre room. But you're saying that we are finally moving more towards people's votes, second referendum, whatever you call it, under any circumstances. So there was a moment back in February, you remember, just after Chukra Muna led eight Labour MPs out of Labour and the leadership was genuinely worried that Tom Watson, the deputy who's somewhat hostile to Jeremy Corbyn, could lead another 50 or so out of the party and basically create this enormous crisis. And you remember that they suddenly popped up and said, yeah, we back a second referendum. And that felt like quite a big moment. But then they wrapped it in an awful lot of fudge. One of the fudges being, yeah, but a general election is still our first priority. The second bit of fudge was this referendum would only be on a damaging Tory Brexit and wouldn't necessarily be on a good Labour Brexit. Now, they've dropped the latter bit of fudge, but there's still a bit of fudge in the air around election is still the first priority. So the full clarity is not yet achieved. And, and so when we say they want a second referendum in all circumstances, it's still a little bit more complicated than that. And the four M's, as we call them, the sort of four main advisors or sounding boards of Jeremy Corbyn, Len McCluskey, Carrie Murphy, Seamus Milne, Andrew Murray, are still sort of trying to hold the line. Also, a couple of members of the Shadow Cabinet, Ian Lavery and John Trickett, still trying to hold Jeremy Corbyn back from totally endorsing Remain and second referendum in all circumstances. But things are moving. And I think the reason things are moving is that British politics is becoming very much a cultural divide between people who feel that they're progressive and people who are small c conservative. And, you know, Jeremy Corbyn gets it in the neck from constituents in his Islington constituency, even though, yes, he is historically a Eurosceptic, he is hearing from people who should be natural Labour and Corbyn supporters all the time why aren't you shifting position? And they've come to the realisation that if they don't occupy this, you know, very clear side of the cultural, political, socio-economic divide, then other people like the Greens and Lib Dems will do it for them. And this is why the pressure is so strong. I should go back one step and just say that the four M's are not necessarily doing this because they're, they, they aren't resisting this because they're dying in the world, Eurosceptics necessarily. They are actually been trying to triangulate, um, but it seems to be failing.
So, Miranda Green, let's just, if we step back and look at the wider picture of what this means for the Labour Party, the real issue is having this, these convulsions over its Brexit policy is its voting coalition. Again, we've talked about this a lot on the podcast. You've got those northern, midland seats that are long-term Labour strongholds, but also heavily voted to leave the EU. And the four M's that Jim mentioned are the people who want to hold on those seats and know they have to hold on to those seats if they're going to win a majority come the next general election. The flip side of that is momentum or the young Jeremy Corbyn supporters, the Labour Party membership are heavily pro-EU and they're not really interested in that calculation. They just want to be, as Jim put it, on the right side of the cultural divide. And then when you throw in the long-term scepticism of Jeremy Corbyn and some of those other people around him, the whole thing just becomes incredibly messy. You've completely accurately described how they see their dilemma. And I'm not denying that it is a dilemma. It's very much more difficult for the Labour Party with its breath of support and with its desire to form a majority government than it is, for example, for the Lib Dems and the Greens, who can occupy a smaller slice of the electorate to make their point and do well. Or even so there the is Tories, a dilemma. who are just sort of the Brexit yeah, party ab- now. Abso- absolutely, although they also have a whole host of problems that we can come on to. But, but so they do have a genuine dilemma. But the problem with how they think about it and how you described it is that they assume that holding on to leave voting seats means representing the leave views of people in those seats. And there are a lot of sophologists who argue that that's seeing it the wrong way around and that if you actually look at the Labour votes, even in a strongly leave seat, they're predominantly Remain voters. So it may actually be a question of trying to sort of keep as much of a coalition of leave and remain voters with you in those seats rather than just defending the leave voters point of view. But I think that Jim couldn't have put it better really about the way that politics is changing and possibly changing in a quite unhealthy way to, you know, away from those kind of class divides in voting intention that have propped up the two big main parties for decades and towards something much more complicated that's to do with your view of the world and which side of this cultural divide you identify with. And the Brexit issue has become a kind of lightning rod for that. You know, my worry is it becomes a bit of a culture war, actually. And then this idea of kind of the left behind, those leave voters get sort of complicated again with a whole load of views about the world which are seen as sort of toxic and not something that the la- the young Labour people in the metropolitan areas want to be associated with. And then you've got a huge problem for the Labour Party when they decide on who they are for and who they represent. Can I just say one other thing on this, though, is that there's a real danger for them, even though Change UK kind of collapsed... If you listen to the things that Chakramuna has been saying in the last few days since he's sort of come out of the closet as a Lib Dem and his third third party this year, you know, people like him saying again and again on the airwaves and also the sort of long-term Lib Dem saying, you can't get rid of austerity, you can't do the things on your agenda in terms of public services, etc., unless you stop Brexit, is also a very difficult circle for the Labour Party to square in terms of its economic agenda. So they've got a huge problem on two fronts with, with their, their prevaricating on Brexit. But can I go back one step to what you said, Miranda, earlier about you know, used to be class divides? I think it, my view of it is it was slightly different, which it was, it was the divide was whether you basically wanted higher taxes and higher spending or lower taxes and lower spending. And the Labour Party found that for a long time that that message was fine because it appealed both to working class voters in the North and the Midlands, just to generalise as we always do, and also kind of lefty liberals in leafy London um, because they agreed 
that higher tax and higher spending was a good thing. And that uneasy coalition actually worked fine on that. But as you say, you know, moving to this totally different culture divide. And I remember polling... Well, also the post-crash world, right? So the there isn't money world. to spend. It yeah. makes the whole conversation different. That, that's also true. I remember polling that really struck me probably three years ago, either just before or just after the referendum. And it talked about how if you were in favour of Brexit, you know, you were pretty dismissive about worries about climate change. You didn't think the internet was a good thing. You weren't really in favour of immigration generally. And the opposite was true if you were a Remain voter. And therefore, when we talk about pro-Brexit and anti-Brexit, we're not really necessarily talking about the fundamentals of the European Council, the Council of Ministers, or the sort of inner workings of Brussels. It's become a talismanic word which signifies an awful lot more. And then just to sort of um, to go back to what will happen if, as I'm now sort of feeling, Jeremy Corbyn is going to head into this more openly Remain position by the autumn. The problem that Labour has is that there are an awful lot of rival Remain parties out there. So we've talked about the Greens, we've talked about the Lib Dems, who have the first mover advantage that they've been saying this for a lot longer than Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party. And don't forget, Wales, Plaid Cymru, are pro-Remain and in Scotland, the SNP remain. And again, they've been saying it for longer, so they have an advantage there. And you saw in the European elections, all of those parties did quite well. So you're looking at a situation which is possibly quite defensive, which is can Labour even win a general election? Or is this now just about protecting the Jeremy Corbyn project and not poisoning it in the minds of young voters? So one person, Miranda, we know Jeremy Corbyn has been looking to for inspiration throughout this is Harold Wilson, who faced a very similar dilemma back in 1975 when he promised a renegotiation, a referendum on Britain's membership of the EEC. And Mr. Wilson went off to Brussels. He got a very minor tweak deal and brought it back and held a referendum. And he suspended collective responsibility. Now, he endorsed remaining in with that new deal. But there were some very prominent Labour figures, Tony Benn and Peter Shaw were two shadow cabinet ministers at the time who come to mind, who were very much against staying in the party. And he just about held the party together with that. Now you can make the argument that all those who ardently argue to stay in the EEC are the ones who went on to form the SDP um, eight years later. But Jeremy Corbyn, I think we've been hearing, has been looking at that model for if there is going to be a future referendum or a future Labour policy, that that is how it is done, that, that, that he will somehow suspend responsibility, have a referendum because as some people like Owen Jones, the Guardian columnist, who's very much a, a media outrider for the Corbyn project, he wrote a column saying, this is what Labour's going going to have to do. It's going to have to back a referendum and it will be renegotiation and then back it or remain. So it really is going to come down to this thing, this extra little fudge Jim was talking about, which is, is it a referendum on a Tory Brexit or on a Labour Brexit? Or does it just go remain and forget leaving altogether? So the thing about the Wilson example, uh, well, two things really. One is that the point of that is that you can use a referendum quite literally to delegate responsibility for making an impossible choice <laughs> because your party is so split. You delegate that responsibility to the electorate and therefore you're able to say, you know, as prime minister or in this case as party leader, well, my recommendation is X, but I'm going to free up my front bench to some of them campaign for Y and then, you know, as, as the public decides. Also, though, we should remind people that David Cameron used this precedent because he said, it's going to be fine, guys. I'm going to go to Europe just like Harold did. I'm going to get some tweaks, a little change to our settlement with the rest of the EU, and then we'll just 
you know, we'll get it through a referendum and we'll settle the thing for another 20 years. And of course, that went very, very badly wrong. So, you know, making the, learning these lessons from history, you know, that they sometimes don't apply. The other thing about that is just that if there is a referendum and you have this quite interesting joint platform for Remain, if Remain is on the ballot paper, which is, is not a certainty, but I guess probably would, would be now, you know, as Jim said, you're going to have all these different parties campaigning together. And if you're the Labour Party and you haven't taken a clear position, or if even if you're being unenthusiastic about your Remain position, because let's face it, that's what Corbyn did last time we had a referendum on Europe in 2016. I think your project's in danger anyway, because all your cheerleaders and your foot soldiers who are putting pressure on you now to change your policy stance towards campaigning for Remain, how are they going to feel about you three, three and a half years on, as it would be, putting in another unenthusiastic performance, which possibly causes you to lose to a no deal Brexit, which would be the other thing on the ballot paper? So going back to that Harold Wilson book reference, so that came up at Shadow Cabinet this week, which I think is the first clear sign we've had of Corbyn starting to move. There are a lot of strong voices for Remain at that meeting. Emily Thornbury, Keir Starmer, John McDonnell saying, we've got to stop this triangulating. We're getting killed out there. We really need to, to start shifting. The only voices that spoke up clearly against it were Ian Lavery, the chairman, John Trickett, the Shadow Cabinet Office Minister, and to some extent, John Healy, housing minister. And what's quite interesting is Ian Lavery did a tweet that he later deleted and said he hadn't tweeted, suggesting that the sort of remainers within the senior echelons of Labour were sort of pushing to revoke Article 50. Now, weirdly, the same day I had from a very good source, intelligence that what Labour is looking at now, the top team, if there is an election before Brexit, they have two options and they haven't decided which to do. One of them is to revoke to go into that election promising to revoke Article 50, they are seriously looking at that. The other option is still to negotiate, to promise to go into the election, to become the Labour government and then negotiate their own Labour deal. And the point made is that in those circumstances, to then promise to remain, even when you've just negotiated your own deal, would be an absurd position to be in. And that is a little bit complicated, but that's the reason why they still aren't quite endorsing remain in all circumstances. I think we should just sort of you know, help listeners understand how badly they are being killed, though, because, you know, there have been three recent polls with the Brexit Peterborough, Party. Peterborough, local elections, European elections. And in all the subsequent opinion polling, the Brexit Party's first, and you've got the combined vote share of Labour and the Tories down to 40% in the Behind the Lib Dems got. as well. Behind the Lib Dems, you know, for Labour to be on 20% neck and neck with a very unpopular governing Tory party is disastrous for them. They are being eaten by the Lib Dem vote. Well, we can come back and talk about this triangulation very possibly next week. That's it for this episode. Thank you very much to George, Robert, Jim, Miranda and Tim for joining us. In the meantime, if you've liked this episode and would like to see more FT journalism, then do take a look at our latest subscription offers, which you can find at ft.com forward slash offer. FT Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Caroline Grady. Until next time, thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.